Hi, this is Hale Shepard, an international tax and tax dispute attorney with a passion for writing. You're listening to Prose by Tax Prose, another article by Hale Shepard. I published a series of articles offering insight about complicated tax issues while still making them interesting and understandable. Please continue listening for one of my articles, previously published in a major journal and read by a professional. It's important to note that I am a tax attorney, but I'm not your tax attorney. The information in the article does not constitute advice or guidance of any type to anyone. It's being provided for general informational purposes only. 30 wrongs do not make a right. Revealing extraordinary IRS actions in conservation easement disputes by Hale E. Shepard. Published in the Journal of Taxation, September 2021. Read for you by Kristen Dummer. Many of the procedures that the IRS is implementing now in the syndicated conservation easement transactions context are far from ordinary and could have negative ramifications for all taxpayers in the future. Many of us, as student athletes furious about some perceived dirty play by the opposing team, vowed retaliation at the first opportunity. Our coaches, of course, tried to dissuade us, explaining that in sports, as in life, two wrongs do not make a right. In other words, they tried to teach stubborn, slighted youngsters a tough lesson, which is that it's inappropriate to do bad things just because someone else supposedly did them first. This lesson applies in the tax context, too. The Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, believes that partnerships that engaged in what it calls Syndicated Conservation Easement Transactions, or SCETs, have claimed excessive tax deductions based on inflated appraisals. The partnerships, on the other hand, point to congressional support for easement donations for over 50 years, the significant amount of pre-donation due diligence performed with respect to each property, full disclosure to the IRS, and reliance on a long list of independent, qualified experts in various fields. The two sides simply disagree, which is fine. What is not fine, though, is that in attacking SCETs, the IRS has utilized a large number of extraordinary tactics that might have negative effects on all taxpayers in the future. Most tax issues are complex, nuanced, and subject to multiple interpretations. The result is that few things in tax are black and white or right or wrong. However, solely for purposes of underscoring the disproportionate measures that the IRS is taking in SCET battles, this article examines 29 wrongs committed by the IRS, together with the supposed wrong by the partnerships of relying on certain appraisals, these total 30. Considering matters from a macro perspective, this article presents the question of whether the 29 current wrongs perpetrated by the IRS in challenging SCETs now are producing a right for all taxpayers in the long term. Overview of Conservation Easements and Tax Deductions Taxpayers who own undeveloped real property have several choices. For instance, they might 1. hold the property for investment purposes, selling it when it appreciates sufficiently. 2. Determine how to maximize profitability from the property and do that regardless of the negative effects on the local environment, community, or economy. Or 3. Voluntarily restrict certain future uses of the property, such that it is protected forever for the benefit of society. The third option, known as donating a conservation easement, not only achieves the goal of environmental protection, but also triggers another benefit, tax deductions for donors. Taxpayers cannot donate an easement on just any property and claim a tax deduction. 
they must demonstrate that the property has at least one acceptable conservation purpose. Taxpayers memorialize the donation by filing a public deed of conservation easement or similar document, deed. In preparing the deed, taxpayers often coordinate with the land trust to identify certain limited activities that can continue on the property after the donation without interfering with the deed, without prejudicing the conservation purposes, and hopefully without jeopardizing the tax deduction. These activities are called reserved rights. The IRS will not allow the tax deduction stemming from a conservation easement unless the taxpayer obtains, before making the donation, documentation sufficient to establish the condition of the property at the time of the gift. This is referred to as the baseline report. The value of the conservation easement is the fair market value, or FMV, of the property at the time of the donation. The term FMV ordinarily means the price on which a willing buyer and willing seller would agree if neither party was obligated to participate in the transaction and if both parties had reasonable knowledge of the relevant facts. The best evidence of the FMV of an easement would be the sale price of other conserved properties that are comparable in size, location, etc. The IRS recognizes, though, that it is difficult, if not impossible, to find them. Consequently, appraisers must often use the before and after method instead. This means that an appraiser must determine the highest and best use, or HBU, of the property and the corresponding FMV twice. First, the appraiser calculates the FMV as if the property were put to its HBU, which generates the before value. Second, the appraiser identifies the FMV taking into account the restrictions on the property imposed by the conservation easement, which creates the after value. The difference between the before and after values of the property with certain adjustments produces the amount of the donation. A property's HBU is the most profitable use for which it is adaptable and needed in the reasonably near future. The HBU must also be physically possible, legally permissible, financially feasible, and maximally productive. Importantly, valuation in the easement context does not depend on whether the owner has actually put the property to its HBU in the past. The HBU can be any realistic potential use of the property. Common HBUs are construction of a residential community, creation of a mixed-use development, mining of all types, and establishment of a solar energy farm. Properly claiming the tax deduction from an easement donation is surprisingly complicated. It involves a significant amount of actions and documents. Among other things, the taxpayer must 1. obtain a qualified appraisal from a qualified appraiser, 2. Demonstrate that the land trust is a qualified organization. 3. Obtain a baseline report adequately describing the condition of the property and the reasons why it is worthy of protection. 4. Complete a Form 8283, non-cash charitable contributions. 5. Assuming that the taxpayer is a partnership, file a timely Form 1065, enclosing Form 8283 in the qualified appraisal. And 6. Receive from the land trust a contemporaneous written acknowledgement, both for the easement itself and for any stewardship fee donated to finance the perpetual protection of the property. Long-standing congressional support. Congress has generally recognized the deductibility of a partial interest in real property for more than five decades. Then, in 1980, Congress enacted Section 170H, which allows landowners to claim a tax deduction for the donation of conservation easements. Congress explained the reasons for codifying this environmental and financial benefit. The committee believes that the preservation of our country's natural resources and cultural heritage is important, and the committee recognizes that conservation easements now play an important role in preservation efforts. 
the committee found it appropriate to expand the type of transfers which will qualify as deductible contributions in certain cases where the contributions are likely to further significant conservation goals without presenting significant potential for abuse. Section 170H has been modified and enhanced several times since its introduction. For instance, in 2006, Congress added a definition of qualified appraiser, lowered the threshold at which the IRS could assert penalties based on erroneous appraisals, and made the tax benefit even more appealing to taxpayers by allowing them to deduct up to 50% of their adjusted gross incomes instead of 30% and to carry forward unused deductions for up to 15 years instead of 5 years. Congress later extended these enhanced benefits several times, from 2008 through 2014. It made them permanent in 2015. IRS Enforcement Actions Identifying the 29 Wrongs Despite historical support by Congress, the IRS and the Department of Justice, or DOJ, have been attacking certain partnerships that donated conservation easements to charities. That is common knowledge. What is not well known, though, is that the IRS and DOJ are utilizing a long list of aggressive, unique, and sometimes questionable tactics. This article is the third in a series focused on this reality. Wrong number one, labeling donations listed transactions. The IRS issued Notice 2017-10 in late December 2016, labeling syndicated conservation easement transactions, or SCETs, as listed transactions. This triggered the need for various parties to file Forms 8886, Reportable Transaction Disclosure Statement, and Forms 8918, Material Advisor Disclosure Statement, providing the IRS lots of details that it utilizes in its enforcement activities. Wrong number two. Implementing a Compliance Campaign The IRS launched a compliance campaign, centered on SCETs, devoting dozens of specialized revenue agents and other IRS personnel to the cause. Wrong number three. Attacks focused on technical flaws. The IRS has consistently stated that the main problem with SCETs is inflated valuations. However, the IRS's primary focus in tax disputes thus far has been on technical flaws, that is, supposed problems with the deed, baseline report, qualified appraisal, Form 8283, or other documents affiliated with donations. The Audit Techniques Guide, or ATG, published by the IRS contains a list of technical duties that IRS personnel are encouraged to pursue. To put things into perspective, even attorneys affiliated with organizations strongly opposed to SCETs have criticized the IRS's approach of challenging supposed technical flaws. For instance, a recent article, playing on an Alice in Wonderland theme, is replete with scathing criticisms of the IRS. Take a gander at some of the stronger statements. The IRS has propagated a House of Cards construct of legal theories to challenge perpetual conservation easements, dragging both the tax court and the conservation community down a rabbit hole, and this distorted view of the code and regulations has harmed the practice of land conservation. The IRS now takes this off-with-their-heads approach in all conservation easement challenges, regardless of the size of the deduction and whether the alleged problem is valuation, technical noncompliance, or a substantive issue. Instead of operating in a land of reason and plain reading of the law, the IRS's mischaracterizations of the code and regulations caused the conservation community and the tax court to find themselves in Wonderland, where the Queen of Hearts indiscriminately orders decapitation over the slightest transgression. 
The IRS's ongoing efforts to confound the tax court, create circuit conflicts, and eventually compel the Supreme Court to resolve this issue exemplifies the current upside-down state of land conservation law for tax-deductible conservation easements. This is baffling given the straightforward framework created to evaluate qualification for tax deductions. Despite the IRS's hyper-attenuated focus on technical flaws, those errors do not actually undermine the merit or substance of the perpetual nature or conservation protections in conservation easements. Unfortunately, for all current and future conservation easement donors and holders, the IRS's path leads straight down the rabbit hole, with the tax court in tow. That won't change as long as the tax court refuses to hold the IRS accountable for fabricating its own rules outside the language of the code and regulations and without following required administrative procedures. The IRS's intransigent refusal to disclose guidance for qualifying conservation tax deductions and its tyrannical approach to declaring failures under the law only through pronouncements in audits and litigation are poor tax policy and a gross disservice to taxpayers and Congress. The IRS's plunge into matters beyond valuation and into elements intended and necessary for conservation easement durability and flexibility over perpetuity has caused a confusing legacy of tax court decisions built on a tottering tower of cards in a wonderland that subverts the true meaning of perpetuity in the code and regulations. Wrong number four, predetermined and vague conclusions. The IRS has implemented a practice of issuing audit reports and notices of Final Partnership Administrative Adjustments, or FPAs, claiming that all partnerships that engaged in an SCET should get a charitable deduction of $0 and should be severely penalized regardless of the amount of pre-donation due diligence performed by the partnerships, strength of the conservation values, existence of multiple independent appraisals, etc., Particularly galling to taxpayers is the fact that in issuing FPAs triggering many years of expensive and stressful litigation, the IRS refuses to specify the factual, legal, or tax reasons for its attacks. Indeed, it often limits itself to alleging that the partnership should get a tax deduction of $0 because it has not been established that all the requirements of IRC Section 170 have been satisfied for the non-cash charitable contribution of a qualified conservation contribution. In addition to fully disallowing the easement-related deduction without providing justifications, the IRS proposes several alternative penalties, ranging in severity. The IRS invariably leads with gross valuation misstatement as it triggers the highest penalty equal to 40% of the ultimate tax liability. Wrong number five, attempts to enjoin activities. The DOJ filed a complaint in district court seeking a permanent injunction against alleged organizers and appraisers, along with the disgorgement of proceeds that they obtained from their dealings with SEETs. Wrong number six, name-calling. The IRS featured SCETs on its Dirty Dozen list for several years. These transactions were absent from the list for 2020, but the IRS indicated its plan to issue a series of separate press releases emphasizing the illegal schemes and techniques that taxpayers use to avoid paying their lawful tax liability, including fraudulent conservation easements. Wrong number seven, congressional inquiry. The Senate Finance Committee conducted an inquiry and issued a report in 2020 suggesting that SCETs constitute abusive tax shelters. 
However, the report did not offer any specific recommendations about how to address perceived problems, and it underscored that the Section 170H deduction should remain. In this regard, the report explained that Congress, the IRS, and the Treasury Department should take further action to preserve the integrity of the conservation easement tax deduction. Wrong number eight, stoking fires in the media. The IRS has engaged in a media blitz, disseminating data via news releases, tax conference presentations, and quotes in articles. The IRS emphasizes that it is, one, pursuing promoters, appraisers, return preparers, material advisors, accommodating entities, charitable organizations, and others. Two, making referrals to the Office of Professional Responsibility. Three, raising a long list of technical, procedural, legal, and tax arguments and disputes while constantly trying to develop more. Four, asserting all possible civil penalties. Five, conducting simultaneous civil examinations and criminal investigations. Six, contracting with appraisers from the private sector to handle the workload. And seven, litigating a large number of cases in tax court. Wrong number nine, pursuit of supposed promoters. In 2020, the IRS appointed a Promoter Investigations Coordinator who is in charge of coordinating with the Civil Division, Criminal Investigation Division, Chief Counsel, and OPR to develop enforcement strategies. The IRS, likely at the behest of the new Promotion Investigations Coordinator, initiated various promoter investigations of persons who organized partnerships that engaged in SCETs. More recently, in April 2021, the IRS announced the formation of the Office of Promoter Investigations, designed to further expand on the efforts of the Promoter Investigations Coordinator that began the prior year. The IRS was clear in that this new development focuses on various items, with SCETs ranking first on the list. Wrong number 10. Searching for Fraud in March 2020, the IRS proclaimed that it had formed the new Fraud Enforcement Office. The IRS augmented this news soon thereafter, indicating that it had hired a National Fraud Council. The IRS also recently issued two Chief Counsel memoranda, describing the method by which the IRS can apply the civil fraud penalty against SCET partnerships. Because the memoranda were issued in response to questions from the National Fraud Council, because the questions were extremely basic, and because the questions could have referenced all partnerships instead of just those that engaged in SCETs, one might speculate that the memoranda were intended by the IRS as a warning to partnerships and as a nudge to the revenue agents to allege fraud or worse. Wrong number 11. Mandating more disclosure. The IRS introduced a new Form 8886 in early 2020. It adds three new subparts to Line 7, all of which obligate a taxpayer to reveal yet more details about the tax benefits from participation in reportable transactions like SCETs. The new expanded Form 8886, unnoticed by most taxpayers and their advisors, should trigger some degree of concern. According to an update to Congress, between 3 and 9 percent of Forms 8886 in recent years were incomplete, and the IRS warned that further analysis and or examination is being performed to determine if penalties are appropriate. New Form 8886 creates yet more chances for participants to get tripped up. Wrong number 12. Swifter summonses. 
The IRS issued a legal memo in February 2020 containing important changes to the audit process involving listed transactions, such as SCETs. The Normal Information Document Request, or IDR Enforcement Process, features three graduated steps. Revenue agents first issue a delinquency notice, followed by a pre-summons letter and ultimately a summons. This multi-layer process generally is mandatory and has no exceptions. Thanks to the recent IRS legal memorandum, the previous mandatory process is no longer required when dealing with SCETs. Revenue agents will now adhere to swifter summons procedures. Doubling down on this mindset, the IRS issued another legal memorandum in November 2020, which provides guidance about the use of summonses. To counter alleged delays and impediments to audits, the IRS legal memo instructs audit personnel to use all available administrative tools, promptly issue summonses, and if full compliance does not ensue, initiate summons enforcement in the courts. Wrong number 13. Neglecting the facts. Revenue agents have traditionally issued taxpayers an acknowledgement of facts IDR at the end of the audit process. The purpose was to ensure that both the taxpayer and the IRS agreed on the key facts such that the dispute before the appeals office and or tax court could focus on legal and tax issues. The IRS has underscored the benefits of the Acknowledgement of Facts IDR for years, suggesting that it facilitates resolution of issues during the audit phase, saves resources on both sides, avoids appeals officers referring cases back to revenue agents for further development, and allows the IRS to prepare the most comprehensive audit reports and FPAWs possible. These positive attributes notwithstanding, the IRS changed its tune in February 2020 when it issued a legal memorandum dictating that revenue agents who audit listed transactions like SCETs are not required to send taxpayers acknowledgement of facts IDRs. One might interpret this as disinterest by the IRS in getting the facts straight before pushing cases toward litigation. Wrong number 14. Revoking procedural protections for appraisers. The Internal Revenue Manual, or IRM, has historically contained a multi-level review process designed to ensure that an appraiser had engaged in a serious degree of wrongdoing before assessing penalties, making referrals to OPR, etc. The prior procedures required analysis by at least five experienced IRS employees, that is, the revenue agent, examining appraiser, primary review appraiser, secondary review appraiser, and review manager, before Section 6695A penalties could be assessed. However, the IRS issued a memorandum in 2020 whose purpose was remarkably clear, eliminating the multi-tier review process for IRC 6695A appraiser penalty cases. Under the recent memorandum, if an examining appraiser determines a gross valuation misstatement while, say, auditing an SCET, he simply needs to obtain written approval from his supervisor and then notify the revenue agent that the Section 6695A penalty applies. Moreover, the memorandum states that revenue agents are solely responsible for assessing the Section 6695A penalty, preparing the related report, and closing the penalty case. In summary, the prior procedures required input by at least five experienced IRS employees before seeking penalties against appraisers, whereas now a revenue agent, who likely has no training whatsoever in the field of valuation, makes the decision alone or with input from just one examining appraiser. Wrong number 15. Fomenting discord with settlement initiative. 
Leveraging the momentum from its recent tax court victories based on inadvertent flaws in deeds, baseline reports, Forms 8283, and or appraisals, the IRS issued a new release in June 2020 describing a potential path to resolution, Settlement Initiative. It then started sending offer letters to eligible partnerships. Opinions vary on the Settlement Initiative, of course, with many interpreting it as a big stick as opposed to an olive branch from the IRS. Those characterizing the settlement initiative as just another IRS enforcement tactic point to several things, including the fact that participation does not serve to limit or prohibit the IRS from later asserting criminal penalties, promoter penalties, appraiser penalties, return preparer penalties, or any other sanction. Skeptics also underscore the differential treatment contemplated by the settlement initiative. So-called Category 1 partners get hit with a charitable deduction of $0 and a 40% penalty, plus they must pay the entire amount right away. By contrast, Category 2 partners can claim an ordinary tax deduction equal to the out-of-pocket costs paid to participate in the SCET. Moreover, their penalties are not 40% of the tax underpayment, but rather 10% to 20% depending on their return on investment ratio. This large disparity might put Category 1 partners at odds with Category 2 partners, triggering anger, distrust, infighting, legal actions, etc. A cynic might speculate that this is exactly what the IRS intended, a classic divide-and-conquer strategy. Wrong number 16. Efforts to undermine privilege. The IRS has become more aggressive in its efforts to gather all potentially relevant data, including pre-donation communications involving accountants and others, despite the fact that they might be confidential. This scenario often arises when partnerships decline to provide the IRS copies of correspondence with advisors on grounds that they are protected by the Federally Authorized Tax Practitioner, or FATP, privilege. This privilege generally provides that the protections applicable to communications between taxpayers and their attorneys extend to communications between taxpayers and FATPs. However, these expanded protections only apply to 1. tax advice, not return preparation and other services, 2. provided by a person who qualifies as an FATP, such as a certified public accountant, enrolled agent, registered tax return preparer, and others, 3. Involving non-criminal matters. 4. In connection with an administrative or judicial tax matter where the IRS or DOJ is a party. And 5. Not regarding tax shelters. The IRS has started trying to overcome the FATP privilege in SCET cases by arguing that the relevant advisors were not providing tax advice in the first place. It also contends that even if the advisors were offering tax advice, the privilege was later waived when the relevant information was forwarded to third parties. The IRS further suggests that SCETs are listed transactions pursuant to Notice 2017-10, and thus tax shelters and a significant purpose of the SCETs is federal income tax avoidance. Wrong number 17. Denial of review by appeals office. The IRS has declared that taxpayers have a right to seek review by the appeals office for many decades. Indeed, regulations issued more than five decades ago in 1967 stated that when the IRS proposes tax adjustments, the taxpayer has the right and will be so advised by the district director of administrative appeal to the appeals organization. The IRS and Congress have confirmed and modified this right several times over the years. Revenue Procedure 2016-22 is noteworthy in this regard. 
It confirmed that the IRS Attorneys General will refer docketed cases to the Appeals Office for Settlement Consideration, but contained disclaimers. It stated that the IRS attorneys will not refer to the appeals office any docketed case featuring an issue that has been designated for litigation, and they will not refer any undesignated case if reconsideration by the appeals office is not in the interest of sound tax administration. In August 2020, the IRS issued a memorandum containing guidance about designation of cases for litigation. It suggested that some tax issues are susceptible to recurring compliance challenges, administrative guidance does not effectively address such issues, and audit personnel may request designation where sound tax administration is best served by forcing the tax court to act as the heavy. Importantly, the memorandum provides various examples of when sound tax administration is best served by establishing judicial precedent, including situations where revoking access to the appeals office supposedly would, one, stem the proliferation of abusive tax shelters or other significant noncompliance, two, reduce future compliance and dispute costs for the IRS and other taxpayers, Three, resolve issues where published IRS guidance has not resulted in what the IRS considers compliance. And or four, obtain clarity where there's a wide divergence between the IRS and taxpayer viewpoints on the law. Consistent with the memorandum, the IRS has started depriving some partnerships of access to the appeals office without formally designating SCETs for litigation. At least one partnership has challenged this IRS tactic in court. Wrong number 18. Using the same data in different contexts. Section 6103 generally requires the IRS to safeguard the confidentiality of returns and return information. There are few exceptions to this broad prohibition against disclosure. The IRS issued a series of notices over the years about disclosure of data in the situations involving tax shelter matters. The IRS started with Chief Counsel Directive 2006003. First, CCD. Its purpose was to provide guidance regarding disclosure of data gathered by the IRS in civil examinations and other investigations of tax shelter promoters and tax shelter investors. The IRS provided examples in the first CCD in support of its position that it can disclose, in separate proceedings, information about different taxpayers who participated in substantially similar transactions involving the same promoter. The IRS next issued Chief Counsel Directive 2006-006, second CCD, whose sole function was to supply additional definitions and examples of the principles described previously in the first CCD. Most recently, in September 2020, the IRS released Chief Counsel Directive 2020-008, third CCD. Its purpose was to add five more examples, all of which pertain to SEETs. The first CCD, second CCD, and recent third CCD reveal that the IRS intends to cross-reference and multitask to the greatest extent possible in SCET cases, 1. Presenting evidence obtained during different administrative and judicial proceedings, 2. About multiple unrelated partners, their relationships with alleged promoters, and predonation actions by various persons, 3. In a manner that supposedly does not violate the nondisclosure rules. Wrong number 19. Punishing prior advisors. 
During the early stages of an audit, revenue agents generally issue a broad IDR seeking a large number of documents, including copies of the relevant Forms 1065, Forms 8886, Forms 8918, tax or legal opinions issued to the partnership, private placement memoranda, and other offering materials. If the professionals representing the partnership during the audit appear on any of these pre-easement donation documents, the IRS often issues a follow-up IDR asking the following questions. Did the professionals advise the partnership or any partners about the planning or execution of the SCET? Did they participate in any manner with the marketing or promotion of the SCET? Did they issue any tax or legal opinions? The IRS is making these inquiries for several reasons. First, the IRS is probing to determine if there is a conflict of interest which might render the representative ineligible to participate in the audit. Second, the IRS is seeking possible ways to argue that the attorney-client privilege or FATP never existed or has been waived such that the IRS can access otherwise confidential communications. Third, the IRS is playing the long game, trying to create a record to support a later motion to disqualify opposing counsel during the tax court proceeding, allegedly because of an insurmountable conflict of interest or because the representative is likely to be a necessary witness. Wrong number 20. Challenging ability to make qualified offers. Section 7430 generally provides that the prevailing party in any administrative proceeding before the IRS or in any tax court litigation against the IRS may be awarded reasonable costs. There is a lesser-known but often more effective way for taxpayers to obligate the government to pay, making a qualified offer. A taxpayer is treated as the prevailing party if the taxpayer's liability, as ultimately determined by a court, is the same as or less than the liability would have been if the government had accepted the qualified offer. Stated differently, if the IRS ignores or rejects a qualified offer, the case goes to trial and the court rules that the taxpayer's liability is equal to or less than the amount of the earlier qualified offer, then the IRS must reimburse the taxpayer's reasonable administrative and or litigation costs. Only two cases have addressed whether partnerships subject to TEFRA proceedings, like most partnerships engaged in SCETs, are able to make qualified offers. Just one of these cases yielded a decision with precedential value, and it explained that TEFRA partnerships are entitled to file qualified offers. Despite the fact that both the Court of Federal Claims and the Federal Circuit of Court Appeals have supported the notion that partnerships can make qualified offers, and despite the fact that the contrary decisions by the tax court were issued in the form of non-precedential orders, the IRS seems entrenched in its traditional position, arguing as recently as September 2020 in a pending tax court case that TEFRA partnerships are ineligible to file qualified offers, period. Wrong number 21. Trying to consolidate multiple cases. Logic dictates that donations of conservation easements are all unique because they involve distinct properties in multiple locations with varying conservation purposes, with particular HBUs, with different partners, etc. The IRS has recently started challenging this stance, arguing that many SCETs are so similar in fundamental ways that the tax court should deprive the partnerships of separate trials and their chance to have justice focused on just one situation. To the disappointment of taxpayers, the tax court has accepted the IRS's reasoning in at least one recent case. Specifically, in Green Valley Investors, LLC, the IRS filed a motion with the tax court asking it to consolidate four different cases for all purposes. The partnerships opposed the IRS's motion, of course, contending that the four cases are factually and legally different and thus should be considered individually by the tax court. 
Siding with the IRS, the tax court agreed to consolidate the cases on the following grounds. 1. All partnerships were organized in the same state. 2. The TMP is the same in all cases. 3. The same attorneys represent all partnerships. 4. All partnerships are seeking trial in the same city. 5. All cases involve SCETs. 6. The legal issues in each case are the same. 7. The conservation easements were all donated to the same land trust. 8. All four properties are located in the same county. And 9. The partnerships in the IRS intend to call many of the same witnesses and introduce much of the same documentary evidence. Wrong number 22. Refusal to provide sample deed language. The IRS has taken many actions, yet it seemingly refuses to budge on others. For example, various parties have asked the IRS to issue model language to utilize in their deeds to avoid triggering unintentional technical flaws unrelated to conservation purposes and unrelated to the value of the donation. One such party is the National Taxpayer Advocate, whose recent reports to Congress underscore that the IRS has engaged in aggressive enforcement actions, resulting in hundreds of partnerships filing petitions with the tax court in a short period. Below are the National Taxpayer Advocate's recommendations. Develop and publish guidance to provide safe harbors and or sample easement provisions to provide taxpayers with examples of how they may construct a conservation easement deed that satisfies the statutory requirements and prevent unnecessary litigation. Develop and publish additional guidance that contains sample easement provisions to assist taxpayers in drafting deeds that satisfy the statutory requirements for qualified conservation contributions particularly the perpetuity requirements for those conservation easements that incentivize land preservation for future generations. The official response by the IRS to the preceding suggestions is that the IRS supposedly shares the goal of preventing unnecessary litigation by making it easier for taxpayers to prepare deeds that comply with applicable law and regulations, the IRS is in the process of drafting sample clauses for taxpayers, but the IRS has not yet published any guidance because of other workload priorities. Wrong number 23, advancing criminal investigations. The IRS has announced for several years that the Criminal Investigation Division would be running its own separate investigations related to SCETs. Consistent with such proclamations, in December 2020, the government publicized guilty pleas by two accountants involved with SCETs, labeling them the first of many criminal tax charges. In a similar vein, high-ranking DOJ tax attorneys announced at conferences that, in the context of SCETs, they intend to assert the crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. This essentially means that they will seek access to communications between attorneys and clients, which normally would be sacrosanct based on allegations that the attorneys supplied advice in furtherance of an illegal or fraudulent activity. Wrong number 24, criminal penalties for ignoring summonses. The most common tool used by the IRS during an audit to gather documents and data is the IDR. The IRS has other avenues, too, including the issuance of summonses. If the recipient of a summons fails to respond adequately, the IRS has several options, the most common of which is asking the district court to enforce the summons. In the context of SCETs, though, the government has taken an extreme position. Specifically, it has threatened to criminally charge those who fail to obey a summons. An obscure tax provision states that any person to whom the IRS issues a summons and who fails to appear to testify and or provide the requested materials can be convicted of a crime, 
fined as much as $1,000, and imprisoned for up to one year. One DOJ tax attorney recently announced that this instrument is underused, often stacked with other applicable penalties, does not require willful actions or inactions by the person charged, and should be taken to heart by the public. These types of admonitions focused on SEETs are noteworthy because they directly contradict IRS guidance to its own personnel. For instance, the IRS acknowledges that potential criminal prosecution is a powerful tool to compel compliance, but cautions that using it often backfires. According to the Internal Revenue Manual, a criminal action does not accomplish the primary purpose of the summons, namely obtaining the needed information, because any proceedings to enforce the summons would be held in abeyance pending the outcome of the criminal proceedings. Moreover, the IRS has stated that criminal charges should only be raised after attempts at civil enforcement fail and that recommendations for prosecution are rare. This leads to the question of whether those at the DOJ making menacing pronouncements are unaware of the government's official stance on the limited benefit of criminal charges, or they simply care more about trying to bully taxpayers than actually gathering the relevant data. Wrong number 25. Seeking additional disclosure statements. Taxpayers generally file Form 8275, Disclosure Statement, to disclose to the IRS items or positions not otherwise adequately disclosed on tax returns in order to avoid certain penalties, such as those for having a substantial understatement of income tax or for lacking economic substance. In situations where taxpayers are taking a position that is contrary to an existing regulation, they file a Form 8275-R, Regulation Disclosure Statement. A comparison of undisclosed and disclosed positions on a tax return illustrates the issues. For undisclosed transactions that are not tax shelters, the general rule is that if there's a substantial authority for the tax treatment of an item, then the item is treated as if it were shown properly on the return. In other words, the item is not included as part of the tax understatement. In the case of disclosed transactions that are not tax shelters, the rule is that the item in question is not counted as part of the tax understatement if, one, the relevant facts are adequately disclosed, either on the tax return itself or on a Form 8275 or Form 8275-R attached to such return, two, there is a reasonable basis for the position, and three, the taxpayer maintains adequate books and records about the position. The IRS contends that an SCET is a tax shelter for these purposes, such that filing a Form 8275 or Form 8275-R would not help taxpayers anyway. Nonetheless, in an effort to eliminate possible defenses to penalties for donations supposedly creating a substantial understatement of income tax or lacking economic substance, the IRS now regularly asks in its IDRs whether the partnership disclosed the SCET to the IRS on Form 8275 or Form 8275-R, in addition to on Form 1065, Form 8283, Qualified Appraisal, Form 8886, and Form 8918. Wrong number 26. Raising theories beyond the tax code. The IRS has been threatening for years to raise novel theories for challenging charitable tax deductions stemming from SCETs. For example, the IRS announced in Notice 2017-10 issued in December 2016 that it might attack SCETs based on the Partnership Anti-Abuse Rules, Economic Substance Doctrine, and or other unspecified rules and doctrines. 
Likewise, in the complaint filed by the DOJ in December 2018, seeking an injunction against various persons involved with SCETs, the DOJ alleged that partnerships were not true partnerships for federal tax purposes. They existed solely as conduit to sell tax deductions, they were shams, and they lacked economic substance. More recently, in the revised edition of the ATG, published in late 2020, the IRS encouraged its personnel to consider launching new arguments grounded in the partnership anti-abuse rules and various judicial doctrines, including bona fide partner and partnership, substance over form, step transaction, and economic substance. Senior IRS officials also speculated that future cases could hinge on the whole picture of transactions misrepresenting their economic substance. Wrong number 27. Attacking tax insurance. In an effort to achieve an acceptable level of certainty, some partnerships that participated in SCETs have obtained various types of protection. Among them is a product that goes by several names, such as tax gap, tax result, tax protection, or tax indemnity insurance. Tax result insurance. This is not new. Tax result insurance has been around for nearly four decades, since the early 1980s. However, the IRS has only recently started challenging it, especially when it comes to SCETs. The IRS regularly inquires about tax result insurance during audits nowadays, sending IDRs seeking copies of all agreements, guarantees, representations, or assurances relating to tax benefits anticipated from the SCET including arrangements to reimburse or indemnify the partnership or its partners in the event that the IRS and or the courts deny such benefits. The IRS is trying to beef up the following syllogism. The bedrock of a partnership is the existence of downside and upside risk. Tax result insurance somehow removes risk. Therefore, insured partnerships that engaged in SCETs are not partnerships and they cannot benefit from tax deductions. The problem for the IRS is that this line of reasoning overlooks several inconvenient realities, a few of which are discussed below. The first reality is that the IRS previously analyzed tax result insurance and essentially concluded that it is not problematic. The IRS published several versions of regulations years ago in connection with the reportable transactions. The first set of proposed regulations, released in 2000, focused on disclosure statements for certain taxpayers. The preamble stated that the IRS was concerned about the proliferation of tax shelters, and the regulations were designed to give the IRS early notification of transactions that may be indicative of such tax shelter activity. The regulations identified various transactions that warranted further scrutiny, including those that offered some type of contractual protection like insurance. The IRS defined the concept as follows. The taxpayer has obtained or been provided with contractual protection against the possibility that part or all of the intended tax benefits from the transaction will not be sustained, including but not limited to insurance protection with respect to the tax treatment of the transaction, or a tax indemnity or similar agreement, other than a customary indemnity provided by a principal to the transaction that did not participate in the promotion of the transaction to the taxpayer. The IRS issued final regulations in 2003. In doing so, the IRS indicated that after considering public input, it decided to remove tax result insurance from the concept of contractual protection. Stated differently, the IRS decided that the existence of insurance does not make something a tax shelter. The second reality is that taxpayers cannot obtain insurance from the IRS. 
Those engaged in organizing partnerships that might donate conservation easements desire certainty through manners other than purchasing tax result insurance. The problem, however, is that the IRS has essentially made this impossible. Many taxpayers would like to proactively approach, disclose all relevant data to, and request insurance directly from the IRS in the form of a positive private letter ruling, or PLR. The rub is that the IRS outright refuses to grant PLRs on many issues fundamental to easement donations, thereby forcing taxpayers to turn elsewhere, such as to companies offering tax result insurance. Below is a list of the items on which the IRS will not issue a PLR, many of which remarkably are identical to the items the IRS is attacking in connection with SEETs. Any manner in which the determination requested is primarily one of fact, for example, market value of property. Matters relating to the validity of a partnership or whether a person is a partner in a partnership. Whether the economic substance doctrine is relevant to any transaction or whether any transaction complies with the requirements of Section 77010. The results of transactions that lack a bona fide business purpose or have as their principal purpose the reduction of federal taxes whether reasonable cause, due diligence, good faith, clear and convincing evidence, or other similar terms that require a factual determination exist. Any matter dealing with the question of whether property is held primarily for sale to customers in the ordinary course of a trade or business. The third reality is that the IRS previously issued two revenue procedures expressly blessing tax result insurance. In historic Boardwalk Hall, the Court of Appeals held that an investor or member was not a bona fide partner for federal income tax purposes and thus was not entitled to receive an allocation of historic rehabilitation credits from the partnership. The primary reason for this decision was that the investor or member had the right to a guaranteed reimbursement of its investment if it did not receive the anticipated tax credit. This, concluded the Court of Appeals, meant that the investor or member did not incur any entrepreneurial risks and did not adequately participate in the financial upside or downside of the business, such that it was not a partner. In response to the decision in historic Boardwalk Hill, the IRS issued Revenue Procedure 2014-12, which established a safe harbor for structuring historic rehabilitation credit transactions. Revenue Procedure 2014-12 describes certain impermissible guarantees. These include a restriction against any person involved in the transaction guaranteeing or otherwise ensuring the ability of a partner to claim the credits, the cash equivalent of such credits, or the repayment of any portion of the partner's contribution to the partnership due to the inability to claim the credits if the IRS were to challenge the transactional structure of the partnership. Importantly, Revenue Procedure 2014-12 expressly states that this does not prohibit the partner from procuring insurance from persons not involved with the rehabilitation or the partnership. In other words, the IRS concluded that obtaining tax result insurance from an independent insurer is not problematic, at least in the historic rehabilitation tax credit context. A few years later, the IRS issued Revenue Procedure 2020-12, which created a safe harbor for partnerships allocating credits for carbon dioxide sequestration. Revenue Procedure 202012 features various warnings, including that no person involved in any part of the company that generates the tax credits can guarantee or otherwise ensure, directly or indirectly, an investor's ability to claim the credits, the cash equivalent of the credits, or a repayment of any portion of the investor's contribution because of an IRS challenge.
However, Revenue Procedure 2020-12 expressly states that restrictions against guaranteed results does not prohibit the investor from procuring insurance, including recapture insurance, from persons not related to the project developer, another investor or partner, the company emitting the carbon dioxide, or a party purchasing qualified carbon dioxide. Wrong number 28. Making inappropriate third-party contacts. Getting audited is bad enough. But having the IRS tell friends, colleagues, employers, clients, and others about it might be far worse. The mere fact that the IRS is auditing someone, no matter how routine it might be, can cause serious reputational, business, and financial damage to the person under scrutiny. The IRS enjoys broad powers in doing its job. For instance, for purposes of auditing any return, determining the liability of the taxpayer, and collecting such liability, the IRS can examine any books, records, or other data that might be relevant or material. It can also issue summonses to taxpayers, persons in possession, custody, or control of pertinent data, and any other person that the IRS may deem proper. The IRS often seeks information from persons other than the taxpayer during the audit process. This is called making third-party contacts, or TPCs. Granting any organization, including the IRS, broad powers often results in abuse. This is what came to light in the late 1990s, which led Congress to enact the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act. That law introduced limitations on TPCs. The legislative history contained the following rationale for imposing new restrictions on revenue agents conducting audits. The Senate Finance Committee believes that taxpayers should be notified before the IRS contacts third parties regarding examination and collection activities with respect to the taxpayer. Such contacts may have a chilling effect on the taxpayer's business and could damage the taxpayer's reputation in the community. Accordingly, the Senate Finance Committee believes that taxpayers should have the opportunity to resolve issues and volunteer information before the IRS contacts third parties. Consistent with the legislative history, the IRM emphasizes that revenue agents should not utilize TPCs as a primary auditing tool, but rather they should first grant the taxpayer a chance to supply the relevant data. The IRM makes this clear in several places. Revenue agents are directed to give notice to taxpayers allowing them an opportunity to provide the information before disclosing to a third party that the taxpayer is the subject of an IRS action. A TPC is made when the taxpayer is unable or unwilling to provide the necessary information or when the examiner needs to verify information provided. The examiner should generally request the information through an IDR before making a TPC. The intent behind this statute is to provide the taxpayer, in most cases, with the opportunity to produce the information and documents requested before the IRS must obtain information from third parties. Section 7602 lacks an express remedy for aggrieved taxpayers. That is, it does not contain a specific procedure for a taxpayer to challenge the IRS in situations where it violates the general pre-contact notice duties. Consequently, litigation in this area is sparse. The pertinent cases primarily focus on a taxpayer's ability to quash or nullify a summons issued by the IRS or a third party when the IRS has not followed all the rules. One such case, J.B. and P.B. versus United States, generated several holdings that echo the language in the legislative history in IRM described above. The Court of Appeals in that case set a high standard in terms of what type of pre-contact notice the IRS must give taxpayers. 
it stated that the IRS must provide reasonable notice in advance, defined as follows. Notice reasonably calculated under all the relevant circumstances to apprise interested parties of the possibility that the IRS may contact third parties and that affords interested parties a meaningful opportunity to resolve issues and volunteer information before third-party contacts are made by the IRS. Despite the unambiguous guidance about the limited use and timing of TPCs from Congress, IRS publications, and the courts, certain revenue agents auditing SCETs have apparently decided to ignore it. Specifically, in response to written requests from partnerships for data about TPCs, some revenue agents have, one, refused to respond on grounds that taxpayers supposedly can only make requests every 90 days without offering any tangible support for such restriction, two, suggested that a request is void if it asks for any information beyond just the names of those receiving TPCs, three, Indicated, contrary to all the sources described above, that the IRS does not need to first seek data from the partnership before making TPCs, and or, four, threaten to refer representatives of the partnerships to the Office of Professional Responsibility for doing nothing more than seeking data about TPCs. Wrong number 29. Refusal to implement improvements. Various parties with different perspectives have offered suggestions to the IRS to improve the situation. For instance, as explained above, the National Taxpayer Advocate has repeatedly asked the IRS to release model language for taxpayers to use in their deeds to avoid fatal technical flaws unrelated to conservation, value, or intent. It has also suggested that the IRS develop a safer harbor and publish it as a revenue procedure, as the IRS historically has done in many other contexts. Others have floated the idea of forming a specialized appraisal board to avoid valuation disputes concerning SCETs, similar to the one that exists for donations of art. Finally, others have recommended that the IRS produce a compliance checklist for taxpayers to use and attach to their tax returns, broadly interpret the concept of substantial compliance with the law, and allow taxpayers a reasonable period to cure any technical defects after notice. The IRS has implemented none of these ideas. Conclusion. Congress, taxpayers, conservationists, the IRS, and others have strong and often conflicting feelings about SCETs. Differences of opinion are fine, and normal scrutiny by the IRS is appropriate too. What this article explains, though, is that many of the aggressive procedures that the IRS is implementing now in the SCET context are far from ordinary and could have negative ramifications for all taxpayers in the future. The IRS tries to demonize SCETs, which is understandable given its role as top tax enforcer. This article offers a counterbalance, suggesting that those concerned about taxpayer rights, separation of powers between the three branches of government, environmental protection, and other large-scale matters should contemplate whether 29 wrongs by the IRS are really achieving a right. Thanks for listening to this article. 30 Wrongs Do Not Make a Right, Revealing Extraordinary IRS Actions in Conservation Easement Disputes by Hale E. Shepard, published in the Journal of Taxation, September 2021, read for you by Kristen Dummer. I hope you enjoyed the article. Feedback from listeners helps to improve my writing, so I welcome your comments and questions. You can contact me by email at hale.shepard at chamberlainlaw.com That's H-A-L-E dot S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D 
at chamberlainlaw.com or through my website at www.prosebytaxpros.com. That's P-R-O-S-E-B-Y-T-A-X-P-R-O-S.com.